Hey family, uh, peace, love, and black power. This is Tech Talk Radio. This is your host, Tech. Uh, today I'm going to do a brief uh, overview of uh, the slave trade. I'm going to primarily deal with African people, but I'm going to touch on some other episodes um, that's relevant to slavery or to the, the, to the transatlantic. Because when we talk about slavery, it's very common to just kind of uh, concatenate all these different details or just put them all together. You know what I mean? And we just call slavery slavery. And we just assume that every form of slavery that became, uh, became for it or after it is the same thing. And it's not. Uh, there's lots of information out there regarding that. But I don't have time to really, uh, to do that today. It's going to be me talking about it. And I'm going to give you a good synopsis. I'm going to start in order for the most part. I'm going to start all the way back in um, circa 700, maybe 20 between 30 AD. Okay, but it's definitely during the uh, the beginning of the 8th century, following the um, the foundation of the Umayyad dynasty. So this is Gabel Tariq, Governor Musa, going into uh, going past uh, Kuwait, where they're going to build the. Uh, Fortress of Gibraltar on the Strait of Gibraltar, which was then the Strait of Heracles or Hercules, right? Uh, we're going to talk about, well, so it's that. Then you're going to deal with the fact that the Umayyad dynasty was, isn't originally a Moorish found, a founded dynasty, but it was overtaken. Okay, you had, after they came there, it, it's reported that even though they came in and conquered, that the Moorish people, the African people who came to fight were were the most discriminated against, even amongst the Christians that were living in a Muslim uh, society. Um, so, yeah, so that's that bit. But that's where the slave trade starts. It starts during that period. And they start primarily dealing with women from uh, the Germanic areas. Okay, um, the Germans and the Slavics. That's where the term slave comes from. It comes from the word uh, Slavic. That's how many of those blonde women they were dishing out. You know what I mean? It wouldn't even be, uh, you know, like, I just need that slave, that slob, that slob. Okay, so you guys start kind of following me there. So that begins that. A little bit shortly after that, you do uh, begin to see, and this is primarily because the people who've also bought into the uh, religion uh, known as Islam, right, a lot of these people were uh, descendants of former Romans, Greeks, uh Semites, so on and so forth, right? And they already came from a system where they did this sort of thing. If you came out of uh, a Greek and Roman society, you came up in a feudalistic uh, society. So the so the prime uh, the primary way that uh, that kind of society was functioning, outside of you know misappropriating appropriating culture from Carthage and Kemet and whoever else they dealt with, was to uh, keep the people dumb to keep them in servitude and to have the people serve them. They come from a culture of dominance. If we go back to the Wormian Ice Age, if we go back to who the uh, the Romans were before they defeated the Etruscans circa 500 BC, this will tell you a lot about who they were. I don't really want to get into that part of history because we're talking about the slave trade. So a little bit shortly after that, getting into the, uh, the 9th century AD, uh, still might be some, actually, it still might be in between 8th and going into the 9th. You start to get your, uh, you start to see black people being put, uh, into servitude. And for different reasons, like to, uh, to even clarify this originally, then this is true in Africa as well. For you to become a slave, you were typically a prisoner of war, right? You're typically a prisoner of war, or you committed some sort of crime, or you had some sort of debt that you had to pay off. Okay, so you would work for somebody for a certain set period of time until you've earned your freedom, you know, and whatever sentence or whatever you would have to do would uh, pertain to however you got yourself in that situation in the first place, uh, for the most part. And there, it's not always true in all cases. Uh, another thing I'd like to point out is that in Africa, with even within this system of servitude, you had rules. All right. There was a certain way that you had to treat your slave. 
And this was documented. And this was in many societies like Sumer. Sumer was more brutal than Africa was in ancient times in terms of how they dealt with their servants. It's not to say that you couldn't flog your servants in Africa. It just rarely happened. It just did not happen. In some cases, they wouldn't even expect you to do that. You would have to really have a good reason to strike and violate somebody like that. This wasn't always the case in Sumer, um, based on the documents that we received from Lagash, which is primarily where we receive a lot of the texts. Uh, they talk about other people, but looking at some of those texts, you see that in a lot of their treatises that they had these kinds of rules. And there were, you know, these are probably some of the proto rules that you uh, that you start to see come up in the Bible a little bit later. And we're going to talk about that much further in this podcast about the kind of um, regulating that the Bible does for uh, slaves and women, right? So you always had this this form of servitude that mostly accompany uh, prisoners of war. There's even a case in West Africa where a slave rose up to be a king, and you find that happening in, in various episodes in Africa or Akibala. So getting back to the to the slavery point, uh, Arab Islam hegemony was the big pusher and facilitator of it. Now, for the first couple hundred years, this is still being somewhat regulated by the Moors. Uh, to give you more uh, context into that, the Umayyad dynasty will fall to the, uh, I believe they're called the Abab uh, Abbasid. Yeah, the Abbasid, right? They will fall to them for a little bit. And the Abbasid, whoo, they got this thing called the Battle of Zanj. You see... That's where the a lot of black folks started uh, revolting against this early form of uh, servitude. And it's called the Battle of Zanj because Zanj or Zanjibar, it pretty much stands for black. Right. And these were and this was happening in Western Asia where they they were revolting against these uh, these Arabs, these Turkish and, you know, mixed uh, early Arabs. You know, and there are some blacks, you know, collaborating amongst them, but it has to be understood that there, that there's definitely a, a definitely a separation. And there's definitely a perceived uh, separation based on the color. Uh, Al-Jahiz uh, writes about this in his works. I know many of us may have heard this or we may not have heard this, but it's called the, uh, the greatness of, uh, black over white or some, uh, something along those lines by Al-Jahiz. It's, uh, it's a great work. There, it would, it would essentially be essays. The whole book that you can get uh, these days would, it would be a book with several of his essays. But one essay in particular talks about a lot of the achievements that melanated people had accomplished even up until that point. So you start to get the the understanding that there is uh, a racial undertone happening at this point. So now that I got that part established we have to understand that the slave trade started as a world trade under islam and now while this was under moorish i mean african hegemony this was regulated somewhat better i you can't uh particularly in europe and in you know the maghrib or the western wing of islam or north africa i like to make that distinct uh, ah, distinction too because a lot of times we uh, we assume that because the Maghreb is in North Africa, we just assume that's what that means. And it means the Western wing of Islam. Now, the Eastern wing of Islam, much, much, much altogether a different story. Okay. But while this is under Moorish control for the most part, it is somewhat regulated. And it wasn't allowed to really um, poison the continent like that at that time. And when you get into your Amoravids and your Amohades being uh, originally from Africa before going into uh, Al-Andalusia, which is now Spain and Portugal today, you um, so you always had that constant um, reinforcement, uh, that constant reestablishment uh, re that, uh, or yeah, that's, that constant reestablishment that this is African people. We're going to deal with African values, our values, really, because I don't there really wasn't a sense of that. But the, the values that they've always been keeping for centuries and thousands and thousands of years would always cross over. Now, let's get into transatlantic. Let's skip all the way ahead. We know that these uh, these Moorish dynasties fall once the Mamelukes and the Ottomans take over. That's a whole together a different thing. Islam becomes a completely uh, white thing now. 
slavery changes, the rules on the women changes, so it takes a completely different form. So the type of teaching that you're getting now, even if you are in Europe, even if you are part of a Moorish family, uh, this is where you get into the early, what, what I call the early indoctrination of our people at this point, because you're learning something that is, um, you know, eventually going to be pernicious for you, because it's going to separate them from the loyalty to their motherland. So, before you even get into 1492, and this is going to kill a lot of people who still hold on to some of this Columbus stuff uh, about, you know, trying to prove the world was really round and trying to prove how you could sail to India. Well, the fact of the matter is uh, the Portuguese had already sailed to India. Um, the Portuguese were actually among the first that were getting out there with ships to uh, to really start navigating and figuring out really the shape of the continent of Africa. They were the ones who really started that. And they and they didn't just do, uh, come by this by happenstance, all right? After the Moors suffered their first uh, significant loss in the, you know, mid-1200s, you know, mid-13th century, right? And they're, you know, and they're banished. And they've already been having Moorish erudition or Moorish scholarship being translated into the Romance languages. Now, you know, places like the close to the hub, like Spain and Portugal, Portugal has the um, has the ability, has some of the knowledge to kind of to kind of get around a little bit. They uh, they hear stories about the gold. All right. Which would be, you know, it's, it's almost impossible not to hear stories about the gold. I mean, especially if you had uh, Mansa Musa. You know, following uh, Abu Bakr uh, or Abu, uh, excuse me, Abu Kari. About uh, Abu Bakr is somebody completely different, and that has more to do with the Amoravids. So let me, yeah. But yeah, so they knew about this goal. They heard about a, a a man called Prester John. You know, and I believe he may be a Christian. He may be a Christian. But anyway, they hear about a uh, Prester John. Who has all this gold? And this is where they they set out to go find. So they sell into West Africa at this point. This is where they're getting a lot of their information. They're starting to set up shop because of the Arab Islam uh, hegemony. You have the slave trade existing in these parts. Now the way that the Africans go about doing it is completely different from how they're going to do it and how uh, the Arab the Arabs were doing. All right. Completely different. This was something where you would still receive education. You could have your own house. Um, you know, they really felt like an extension of the family. I always bring up this reference a lot, but since it's primary text, uh, Gustavus Vasa's uh, autobiography, Olaluda uh, Equiano, right? Uh, he talks about this right off the bat. And he makes several references, you know, throughout his book. But right off the bat, he tells you the... Uh, somewhat of the landscape of where he was at, you know, kind of how the servitude system works, how he came to be a slave, how he felt, you know, how he felt about it then, how it would go down. Like everybody would come together. They would work. Let's say you would come and you would help this neighbor need the house built. So you would come help build the house with all the other people and along with the family, you know, the able-bodied workers, you know, you wouldn't be working by yourself. And at the end of it, you would be paid with food or, you know, whatever, you know, that would be your payment, but this is also African society. So everything is not completely based on money, even though they have a currency, they still have a bartering system. Okay, so back to that. So the Europeans, the Portuguese in particular, it's these guys, they're coming in there, they're bartering, they're buying into the slave uh, system. Uh, they want to start gathering resources. All right, they need gold. They need gold. They just got done defeating these Moors, these Africans that they felt that were in their land. And you have this uh, Arab Islamic empire, which is basically they cousins. They just, you know, little mixed cousins, you know, but they are in control. Now, they had already conspired together to get the Moors out. But Islam, Allah wasn't about to relinquish no control to nobody at that given time. So they had to find out. So they started building up little fortresses here. This is when you're starting to get into uh, buying a lot of those slaves and for help, you know. So they started building a fortress here, fortress there, start talking to different navigators here. 
And before you get, like, by the time you get to, like, 1450, they already got a few, like, little fortresses uh, set up. And that's important because that shows you that they were planning this ahead of time. Now, we may not feel that significant today because we live in the age of social media. You get instant gratification just like that. Okay, you can talk to this person just like that. You can set up plans and arrange things in a matter of minutes or even hours. But when we go back into the past, it's not that simple. Oftentimes, you would have months into planning because of the how far everybody would be, especially if you're planning to go into war, right? So this would be years, months into planning. And this shows you the kind of mentality that they had even then. If you're setting up fortresses, right, about 50 years before you even officially drive out the Moors from uh, from Europe. Year before Columbus actually takes his trip with slaves. Like this is very this is very, very significant because it shows you that they had this intention beforehand. It showed you they had this intention to exploit beforehand. And even after they set up in Almina, or that's, you know, because that's what they do. And they, you know, they were playing politics. They were trying to overthrow kings and all these different kind of things and what is now uh, Ghana today. But they established themselves there and they're able to, you know, to make some wealth and really prepare themselves. So now, jumping fast forward, you do get into this Columbus thing. Columbus, he was doing double dealing with the Portuguese. He was tricking Spain and doing double dealing with Portuguese. So whatever deal that he came up with to go get them some land. You know what I'm saying? That was just for a little bit of funding or whatever else he had. It was the Portuguese who already had the knowledge. And a matter of fact, one of his navigators came from Almina. Okay? Christopher Colomb, Colombo, whatever you want to call him. You know, this was, yeah, that's what he did. But this is because of the Portuguese. And it's no wonder why he would allow with the Portuguese. Because the Portuguese had an, had an advantage in terms of navigation at that time. The rest of the European world did not uh, catch up yet. They did not catch up. Now, because Portuguese had such a quick start, but they did not have enough time in terms of nation building. Because, yeah, there's another point I like to make, too. The marriage between uh, Queen King Ferdinand and Isabella is really what sealed the deal for the Moors. That marriage is what really, uh, really did it. Right. And another point I like to make. Is that uh, during this time before even 1482, okay, because some significant events happened in Africa and Ghana in 1482, but even before that, because they know what they what they want to do, because they know that they want to enslave these people, uh, and at the same time push these Moors out of Europe, that's when you start to come up with the propaganda. Now I know a lot of people who have seen the Healing Colors and maybe read some, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the title. The title will come to me. But you may have heard about um, the queen reducing anybody who was a cannibal. For you know, first of all, anybody who wasn't a Christian could be put into uh, slavery. Next thing became anyone who's a cannibal can be reduced to servitude because you would find that there are plenty of African Christians. In fact, you'd have several um, denominations of Christianity that were still existing in Africa at that time, and. Uh, you had an existing form of Christianity in Africa before even that. And the the propaganda talking about cannibalism, that really had a lot to do with tricking the Europeans that were now going to start traveling into Africa, you know, to start buying slaves, to start acquiring gold. Because that's what they want. They did when they first come to Africa. They don't want no slaves. They want gold. They need money. All right. That's one main reason why they out there. What's that? That Marco Polo, all that, you know. That's their main, uh, no, it's not Marco Polo. What's that guy's name? No, it's not him. That name, but this is a, this is a guy that, you know, after they drain up all the, uh, silver mines and stuff like that, because a European doesn't know about, um, how to do things with some, some tact or subtleness or to be conservative. Yeah, he can be conservative on issues that don't need any conservation. But outside of that, you know, it's fairly reckless. But anyway, uh, the propaganda, the propaganda was created to 
check the minds of the people who were Christians and who were believing that kind of indoctrination that that was being handed down during the Crusades and everything like that um, to to make them feel easier to, to assuage their consciousness about what they're about to do to these people. You know, so when they go in there and they start to finally make their moves, oh, the Portuguese are going to have to leave West Africa for a bit. This is how they wind up in East Africa, by the way, after they make a little deal with some Arabs and start fighting over little territories over there because they're trying to enslave the people uh, surrounding Ethiopia. Ethiopia was the only place that they couldn't just outright conquer, but they were able to uh, enslave people from Ethiopia. They were able to, you know, snag, you know, snaggle stragglers and so to speak, and actually work deals with certain people. So, you know, you, you know, you have that, but yeah, the Portuguese, when, cause it, it, Africans have never been stupid. Okay. And the only reason why the Portuguese were able to get in there in the first place is that is, or the, uh, the Moorish dynasties had already done a number on the African civilizations that were there. Okay, so the great empire of Mali had been converted, okay, following uh, Babukari's journey, and you come back to Mansa Musa, you know, they had already been kind of dealing with these people, because um, there's a lot of different ways that Islam got into uh, to Africa, particularly West Africa, you know, they were always, they were already setting up there because of the Berbers and the Moors, and their relationship with being able to uh, get to those roots to get to the goal. So they would set up little outside cities, little Muslim cities outside. So this was their first uh, introduction. But like many people, people tend to gravitate to what they already knew. But uh, Mansa Musa's father, Ababukari's brother, he was one of those people who I believe he had traveled and he had uh, learned their ways, learned some some of the Islamic uh, erudition and some of the, uh, the doctrine, right? So that's one thing. Um, you had like the Almoravids, they had taken, I'm trying to think about who did they, were they the ones responsible for the defeat or the, as far as Timbuktu? I'm told you guys, I'm not, I'm going like this, all this stuff is straight from the dome. I haven't even gone to any book that's by me yet. Uh, I probably, probably should, but I'm just trying to keep this fluid. But yeah, so bottom line, um, the Moorish dynasties had already done a number on, uh, African civilizations. And the last one to go, especially after they ban- uh, banished the Moors from Europe, when they come back, they have no loyalty to the continent. They had grown up in this society. They had grown up as Europeans. They had grown up as Muslims you know, or as Arabs. You know, the Arabism that was uh, prevalent during that time. That's what they were. So when they go and retreat to uh, Morocco, I believe, um the first thing he uh, they do, they go and take out Songhai, the one of the last great uh, seaworthy empires. This was another great trader. And just to give you a little extra history on this, because John G. Jackson is one of my favorite favorite scholars. Uh, he has some people from South Carolina, so he did a lot of a uh, lot of research on that, and he found out a lot of the people who wound up in South Carolina were from Songhai. All right, these were Songhai traders. So just a nice little, nice little point. But my point that I'm trying to make with this is that before the European had got there, Africa had already been weakened, particularly even in Western Africa. So, but they would fight. They were still fighting. They had to take their butts over there to uh, East Africa. I can't remember if it's the Portuguese in particular that do this, but then they find them way. the Europeans find them way, their way to uh, Manamantapa. And they're able to convert him because, once again, we've already had a system that is very similar to Christianity. So it was very easy to kind of get him to convert. But that just kind of gives you the overall general view, at least initially, of how they were kind of able to weave and whittle their ways in. So before you even get into the uh, the cooperation by the Ashanti, because I got to get right into this, because I know at 24 minutes, somebody's want to know. What about the Africans that collaborated and also participated in the slavery? Well, a lot of your major collaborations, there's always collaborators, right? But your major collaborations by, by people don't occur until much, much, uh, much later and oftentimes uh, by the barrel of a gun. Okay. So the Ashanti people, which is a Ghana, uh, they still, you know, like under the Akan and everything like that because that's basically why, you know, I'm trying to deal with the Iwe, the, uh, the Akan, 
the Yoruba. These are all the same kind of people. And all these same kind of people fought. And just like any other group of people, you got people who aren't so honorable. Who aren't so uh, willing to do what's right. Alright, but I had to tell you, I wanted to touch on that real quick. But getting back to the Europeans. Right, so that's what establishes all of that. You know, then you have your chips, this one, uh, your ships with the names because you know they sent, they sent missionaries in. That's the other part to it. Uh, they always send missionaries before they start doing most of the work, even the Portuguese at first before when they start in the early 1400s, they send their missionaries. The missionary is there to start converting people, start getting familiar with the language, start getting familiar with the territory. Um, this is what they do, family. And they're not, they're unapologetic about it. If we watch any movie about them dealing with some ancient society, which really, let's be, let's be clear, it's not so ancient. So when we looked at things like El Dorado, uh, or Atlantis, even though Atlantis is probably, you know, and I know I'm going to piss a few people off, it's probably more fictional than not. Or it's probably a very, very specific city that has been taken way, way out of context. But I gl- I like the fact that the Disney movie or whatever had the uh, the people dark and melanated. Uh, but it's like all those movies are like Avatar, you know, where they use that blue-black. In all the movies, they pretty much show you uh, how they go about doing things. And I hate using movies for an example, but sometimes there's uh, symbolism in movies that we can use. And if we pay attention, we'll see that they always have that one except that one quote-unquote exception... You might have one person that's like a mixed thing that you you know might be able to dip in and out, but nine times out of ten you got that one either white boy or white girl who's in the set, uh, you know who's the exception. Of course, the Europeans, so they're gonna romanticize it. It's gonna be some sort of love thing, like some taboo, like ooh, we're not supposed to be together, all this other kind of thing, mm. like all that kind of like ridiculous shit. Oh, excuse me, family. So anyway, you know, so that you can see that in uh, what you call it in Atlantis is like, of course, they always lead the people to the. To what they ain't supposed to get. Put the whole damn community in danger. Avatar, same thing. You know, this time they went so far as to got in the body. I even look at the, and that is the symbolism of what they do now. They want to wear our uh, hip-hoppy clothes. Speak the lingo. Speak the language. You know what I'm saying? Infiltrate. Find out what they need to know. They did the same thing with the Patois or the Creole. You know, European wasn't supposed to know nothing about anything about that. But now they've been involved, so you can't hide that from them. Let's go into that. Yeah, so it's like they're willing to to wear whatever visage, put on the clothes. You know, they got these books like uh, Maasai Warrior Princess, white women, of a white woman, whoever wrote the book. Now she's a, a warrior princess. They're always vicariously assuming the role of the people that they're trying to exploit. All right. If you look at it as the Christian missionaries, it's not too hard. If you understand the African spiritualities, you could see the, the similarities. And people uh, being trusting, being uh, being the trusting people that we are. Um, when they, when you speak, you're just like, okay, that sounds... It's very... It's very easy. It's like they just put on that robe. They put on, they put on that spiritual robe that had, they have been doing for many, many centuries. They put on that, that garment that, okay... I'm going to wear this. I'm going to be this. And we believe them. And as soon as we believe them, they take that stuff off and, and, and throw the chains on. I'd like to tell you guys about this particular story spoken by uh, Professor... Um, oh my God. Uh, what is this sister's name? Mm, mm, mm. She was... Well, for the family that's seen it, she was in... Um, Haiti. She was in uh, Tariq Nasheed's uh, 1804 Haiti, but she's done many, many, many lectures. She's been lecturing for a while. And she actually tells a story about the early Arawaks in ha- uh, Haiti and one of the ways that they actually tricked the people there, because once again, you know, not every indigenous, well, first of all, not every indigenous person, not every African was just super ass friendly and just, you know what I'm saying? Uh, a lot of them was trying to run them out and didn't like, you know, didn't like the vibe, but there were some people who, who did like the vibe. And they would say little things like, oh, look at these nice bracelets that we brought from you after multiple interactions. This didn't happen right off the jump. After they had brought them this, brought them some gold cross. Oh, no, you know, they're not really caring because they're not really too materialistic. Everything is about the symbology. You know, they're not going to look at this other person as worse for not having the material. 
they still were able to create, you know, such a thing. And if it's something that they can do better, we can exchange now. That was the mentality of these early people. So um, on one of the other times, they say, oh, look at these nice bracelets. Put these bracelets on. And they happen to be chains. Many of these people, originally, uh, if you listen to the oral histories, were very well-fed people, even the women. And women were in charge, especially in AET, right? So, you know, so under all this servitude, many of them got skinny. Many of them got skinny. And I just want to share that with you because I want to speak to the deception that the European has always and historically used to get their way. It is, and it's always been there. They've always been able to pull the wool over our people's eyes. And because most people dealing with them for the first time had, had never seen anything like this before, I don't believe we feared them. I don't believe we feared them. I don't believe we gave, we had enough appropriate fear, healthy fear when dealing with something we had never dealt with before. And at the same time, just like how it is today, we're also dealing with each other. We are the majority on the planet. That was true then as it is now. It was probably more true then than it is now. Because historically, and I'm going to bring up a few episodes to support this, Europeans have never brought a lot of women with them, if any. So when you think about these early voyages going to places, they're amalgamating with the women that are there. One way or another. Okay, a Lincado is just a mixed breed of the Portuguese. And these became the people that would assist, assist with the slave catching. This is the other point about the collaborators. Most of these were mixed folks. The, pro, the byproduct of their father and um, an indigenous woman, whether it be in Africa or in America. They very seldom brought women, so they would have to establish some sort of society because even if you came down there and put it down right so you didn't came in there guns ablazing took over whoop-de-whoop okay you're gonna get old you have to have some way to sustain that victory and if you already don't have the numbers and if it's already difficult physiologically for you to to be there as we will find because once again oh not once again but just to make this point clear a point that i didn't make that even before uh, Islam, white people already had uh, a system of enslaving themselves. I talked a bit about it with the feudalism, but I didn't talk about it in the Dark Ages where you start to see a lot of the same types of tactics being employed. And the historical records are quite clear on this. Initially, because this is who they are, you know, and they were buying in early on to the African slave trade, they still had to use white slaves. That's why they didn't like the Irish. That's why they didn't like uh, some of the other people. After time had went on and there became more of an impetus to receive African and dark-skinned slaves uh, on the strength of they had uh, immune systems uh, built up to deal with the European after they didn't got everybody sick on the other side. Even if they were of melanated uh, descent on the other side, they may not have been, a, been able to fight off the, the common cold or whatever communicable diseases that the Europeans brought with them. And then they, uh, and then they weren't able, all of them were able to stand the heat. And the type of treatment that they had to endure because the European being someone who uses things like how they use resources and everything, they use it till it's depleted. They don't have a sense of let, allowing it to rest, uh, to, uh, to improve or to facilitate the longevity of a resource, right? So going back to my main point about the, uh, European never brought a lot of women to travel with him. And that's been seen out through history. It was seen before they went and fought the Etruscans, right? And these are African people settling in Europe in the place that you would call Rome today, but basically Italy, right? They didn't bring any women with them then. They didn't bring any hardly any women with them when the Visigoths and Vandals went and invaded their own people in the Roman Empire. They didn't bring many women with them then. Okay. Um, when you think about the Aryans that came in there and started Brahmanism in India, they are not known to have brought many women with them. And that's the thing. And I always bring this up because this is a resounding point about, you know, just in general about sun culture and ice culture, right? These people who had been in battles before, they had weapons. These were in the, in the, in the group that they go in a cost. They're more or less, they're more peaceable than some of the neighbors. That much must be said. 
But these are not punks. And they fight. You know, that's how you get an untouchable. Because these were the descendants of those that fought. The Shudras were the ones that were defeated or just gave up. But they had to get a place lower and lower for the people who were fighting. You know, and fighting back. And they must have been fighting pretty well to have been fighting back for that long and to earn that level of disdain. Or perhaps the conqueror is just that uh, insecure. But yeah, it's when they first go in there and attack, the man or the, their response to when they see their, wa- their woman being raped is what kind of behavior is this? There wasn't even a word. You rape me? You rape my wife? You rape my children? You you kill? It's just the type of value is are so different. It's just a, such a polarity in the values. Right or a dichotomy. That I think that's a better way to put it. Such a dichotomy in the values. They didn't even know how to handle this. Okay. And that's something that you, can even be attributed to when you look at to the uh, the transatlantic slave trade, because they've always had a system of servitude, and they probably felt like they had seen every type of change or behavior possible. No one, no YouTube or no TV or you know any of those kind of things. Or the kind of society that we have that glorified that we, we've become so uh, desensitized to death. It doesn't really bother us the same way like as it would them. It would really bother them. If you think about those, uh, think about those times. I mean, you're talking about people who, yeah, they, you know, they get into it, they fight, they bicker, but you have a, a such a respect for life. You have such a respect for life. That you couldn't imagine doing any of those things. And there's so many women. First of all, women were respected. They were plentiful. Deserved uh, everything that they had coming to them. It just, it, there was no reason for that. So you have to understand that even when Africans came, this was a whole new thing. It's like getting adjusted to some a, a, a deadly climate out of nowhere. That was one snowstorm, no pun intended, that the Africans were not prepared for. And when you consider, like I said, the Moorish, or the people, uh, what's their real name? The uh, Musashish, or Musish. So there's a name. They've never called themselves the Moors. So I'm going to continue to colloquially misnomer the Moors because that's what everyone understands. So like I said, the Moors had even attacked each other. Uh, Songay, how you even get Songay? They, that was a, yeah, that was someone who had uh, usurped that land. That's how you get the name Songay. Songay is actually a slur like for thief. <laughs> and the person is so proud of this. The queen that calls him a thief, he's just like, okay, I accept this. And then that's how you have the empire of Songay. So you you had black folks, as we do today, who are always been fighting each other, battling each other tooth and nail. And so this is, that's your reality. How you get down, how you fight, everything else like that, that's your reality. Okay. Then you're in com- uh, you in com- uh, encountering a whole different type of reality, a whole different type of mentality. And it's so unlike your own. It's so unlike your own. But it's difficult because, you know, the way that they kind of have to go about it, it's not up front and in your face. But because the, the communication was poor between Africans at that time, most of the documentation that could have probably given them some sort of... uh indication of what these kind of people were uh, was not available to them. Uh, it had probably either been burnt or discarded. The only other Africans that had those kinds of dealings, those were the ones that were either they were either already fighting or had been defeated. I'm talking about the Moors. These are the only ones at that point who were uh, familiar enough with the European to do battle with them. And as evident, excuse me, as evidence in the first few crusades where the Moors handed their butts, uh, very handedly. Uh, that's how the Europeans get the guns in the first place. <laughs> Moors had the guns. And then that's how the Europeans got the guns. And after the Moors are defeated, now it's the Europeans with the guns. So, you know, I know I've rambled for a little bit, but I'm hope I'm starting to kind of build the pitch and I'm, and I'm far from finished, family. I'm far from finished. Um, cause I'm just talking about transatlantic, but I, ooh. but there's, there's, there's so much more that you can cover about the slave issue, but I'm primarily want to, uh, deal with this transatlantic right here. And I might deal with some other aspects of it, like 
West Asian uh, slavery in terms of how that went down over there because there were ranks. So there was some similarities between it's just it was more brutal. You had double castration over there in Islam and things like that in China. A lot of people don't know a lot of a lot of black slaves were sent to China because they were like, um, you know, many of them were like for being good divers or diving for pearls. Uh, other things like that. You actually even have, um, what's his name? Uh, not Sasuke, but there's a name of a, uh, of a Moor, 1500s, that actually serves with, uh, Oda Nobunaga in Japan. And many people who have seen some of the, uh, more recent documentaries might be familiar with the first, uh, black shogun or the first shogun in general. Okay. So those are something I might cover in a, in another, another podcast. Getting back to, uh, this transatlantic, right? So you got these missionaries coming in and it doesn't happen overnight. Of course, they're fighting with each other too. So that's the other thing. Um, you have more rebellions in centrals and on the islands in South America because of how the demographics look, there's way more Africans and indigenous to Europeans out there. So that's where you get into them having to actually ally with each other. That's when you get into your mestizo classes and Creole classes at first. Therefore, you uh, evolves into a Hispanic and then later on Latino. And I, you know, and I, and I do it in that order intentionally because that's how it worked. There was Hispanic before there was Latino. Latino is a word that was created uh, or that derives from the French word Latine. And when French, when France was doing its thing and was trying to take over thing in the Americas like AAT and the various islands in Mexico, a lot of people don't know that France had wanted Mexico. They had Egypt for a little bit. That's what made Napoleon great. All right. He had, they were, they were taking over stuff. Right. But anyway, um, the Europeans vastly outnumbered. That's when you have to get into what you call, I believe, uh, hyper descent where the more white blood you have, the higher your level goes. That's the exact opposite of what you have in the United States of America. And this is why we have a lot of conflict with our brothers and sisters down there because we're not, we, we're not hip to the game. We, we're different with two different types of racist systems with a lot of similarities. Bar none, almost tit for tat similar, right? But, Okay. In a, in a hypo descent, which is in United States, you have it to where it doesn't matter if you're one thirty second Negro, you're black. You're black. Okay. And that has to do with the demographics there. So, uh, and also another thing in the, uh, in the Caribbeans and the islands is that, um, even if you were sold, <laughs> Because of the size and everything like that, you could, you know, you could be sold to another plantation and be in walking distance to your family. So even though you were sold, if you had a meeting area, all you guys would have to do is leave your respective uh, plantations and go meet up and do your thing. This is another reason why you have hyper descent in the um, Central and South America, because they had to find a way to like, OK, now that we didn't split you up, I didn't rape your mama. You know, I got to keep, I got to find a way to make you feel like you different, even from your own cousin. That's colorism. All right. That's colorism. Brock busting, everything that they were. That's why it was just way bright, brutal down there because they had to find ways to, to separate us from each other. And then when you're bringing people from West Africa, from Yoruba, from Benin, uh, you know, what is now Ivory Coast, Togo, all these places, Ileife. You know, a lot of these people spoke the same language or the language is close enough. And you already got lingua franca or words like if you live. So basically lingua franca is, is are words that you use that, you know, you have two different languages, but you do business with each other. So it's just like a colloquial term that both of y'all can use. OK, there's lots of lingua franca within the romance languages. OK, like bank, banco, all those kind of things. OK, so, yeah. That's that right there. So you had the lingua franca, so these they could communicate with each other. And that's how you get the voodoo. You have Yoruba people with Benin or, you know, farm people. And now you have, now you get this, uh, this amalgamation. It is a, it is incorrect. And I hear this said all the time. And this is because, because of the Yoruba, uh, the Yoruban influence. 
you have a lot of uh, deities that just cross right over. Okay, like Ogu just crossed right over. All right. And Ogu is the same. So Ogu and Akan is Ogun. Oh, no, not Akan. Ogu and uh, Vudun is uh, Ogun and Yoruba, one of the Orishas of Yoruba. And it also uh, cognates with the um, with the Kemetic uh, Heru, Heru the First or Heru Beduhet. This is Heru Ur. This is not to be confused with the child of Asar and Aset. Okay. So I'm just, you know, I just wanted to throw that in there. But, uh, so you got these, you know, so you got these, I, I had to correct that though, because I hear, I've heard a comic say it. I've heard a few other people say it. You're not entirely wrong. But because we don't know about Benin and we don't know about some of the other great African places, you know, we, we, we make, we make a few mistakes here and there. And many of us aren't as well read as we should be, but that's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing this podcast. So, yeah, so that's why you would have all those kinds of, uh, all those kinds of rebellions. Now, I just touched on a point that I think I should elucidate, um, um, or elucidate. I, that was redundant. Um, as far as why don't we know about these places? How have they been keeping this hidden and why? What benefit? Well, first of all, I brought this up in the beginning of the podcast is that when you want to make a group of your people hate another person, you have to make them seem different, barbaric, savage. That's where the cannibal stuff comes from. You have to dehumanize them. You cannot allow them to maintain anything, not just for them and their own minds, for your people in your minds. Just look at the work of Count Vonley. That's telling into itself that all these years we've been taught this and here is the reality. And what that could do to their cause. Because your cause at that time, particularly in the 15th and 16th centuries, was we need gold and slaves. Right? You can't be feeling sorry for these slaves. You can't tell people that these are barbarians and they came from nothing and they need us. They need our Christianity. They need our technology and all this stuff. If they have stuff greater than you. Elaif had paved roads about 1000 BC, probably sooner. That's probably still being very conservative. Okay, just to kind of, you know, stay within the confines of what, you know, the the typical scholarship would allow on what the so-called preponderance of evidence will uh, accept. You know, that's why they had to get rid of your monomontapas and tell you that, you know... um, all these different civilizations just were myths or these fame, you know, these photos, these concepts that they have in all these galleries around the world are just myths and fables. Uh, many of us may not even be aware that the wall around Benin and Benin today is not Benin or what it used to be. That is a shell. The Benin wall is actually located somewhere in Cameroon, I believe, or usually have parts of it can be seen from Cameroon. It just shows you how big Benin used to be. You know, and uh, in the city Edo, hmm, that's another point. Oh, I should do. Oh, I should do a, a podcast on Benin. Oh, I would blow a lot of people's minds. You guys would not be trying to do no samurai swords no more. I know that. But anyway, the wall that was surrounding Edo was four times larger than the Great Wall of China. It's not standing anymore, not completely, but that's how big it was, and that was the the general. Uh, consensus about a lot of these African cities. You had whole African cities with palaces bigger than Af- uh, than whole European kingdoms, whole countries. This is another reason why they serve you the Makeda projection map instead of the Peters projection, even though they know the truth. You start putting these things together, it's just like this little thing called England couldn't even. <laughs> it's ridiculous. You have whole cities bigger than whole European countries at that time. And there's lots of information out there on that family. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to see how much I can attach at the end of this. But anyway, my whole point with that, that's, that's why they had to do that. That's why they had to go spit on your language and, you know, maybe deal with a few twa people and hear some clicking, you know, because that's 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 exactly what it is. Anytime you hear all that kind of stuff, they're talking about the uh, the twa or the pygmies. 
hot and tots, whatever kind of crazy word they want to use. I just, I respectfully refer to them as the twa. All right. But, you know, when you're talking about the clicking language, you're talking about these people. And this is your first version of human recorded in history. You don't, I mean, not human, homo sapien. You don't have any earlier versions of homo sapien. Okay. They've been mining in South Africa, gold mining 50,000 years ago, possibly more. You're talking, you're talking about a very original human being. And not, and not to also mention that they speak more than one language. And at one point, they also, uh, they said they had lost this, but they said at one point they even knew the baboon tongue. So a lot of this other language and, and things that we emulate or other people emulate to disparage us is really something far more unique. You're actually talking about people who have, like, no one calls the people, the bird whisperers and all the bird callers and duck callers crazy. You know what I'm saying? But you're talking about people who've been doing this since the beginning of time, being able to mimic and understand the certain physical uh, motions and the um, vibrations that signify whatever message that you can to this creature. You can't even domesticate animals without, without that concept of communication. You have to know how the animal communicates. But yeah, that's what you have to, but you have to, you have to disparage that. You can't talk about this elaborate languages. You can't talk about the fact that Walaf is much closer to the ancient Meduneter than Coptic. And it's been proven. It's been proven. The Cairo Symposium held at UNESCO where Shank Diop and his protege, even though they, they call him protege, but he was holding his weight too. Theophilo Bango went there and they shut it down against multiple European scholars. Multiple. And you can get, and you can read the report and the conclusion yourself. There has never been so much scholarship brought onto the table. From anthropology, DNA, linguistics, they go the whole mile. Okay? But they can't tell you that. That was found, that was done in the 60s. All right. People had already been making this argument since Count Vonley in the eight, uh, in the 18th century. And people have to understand that Count Vonley's work only came out about eight years after, uh, Ivan, uh, Blumenbach's work, the, um, or just the art. It might have just been an article, but it was his work, um, The Natural Varieties of Mankind, where he pretty much proposes his super race and all this other kind of crazy stuff. You know what I mean? Which really sets forth a lot of this racist, uh, of course, he was German, but of course it brings up that racist notion. Hold on just a sec. Okay, sorry about that family. My grandpa had to grab something real quick. <clears throat> uh, where? Oh, I hate when I do that. That's why I hate getting thrown off. Right, yeah, but let's go back to the linguistics, right? Um, cause they are kind of lost my place, y'all. But, uh, yeah, going back to the linguistics, they can't let you know that you have this much of a close relationship with ancient Egypt or one of the the state at first uh, civilizations that we know of, one of the oldest civilizations that we know of, and that's part of the impetus for such the, for for this push for Sumer. You know, because now they have to bring the start of civilization, which they had already been trying to do. Uh, to give a little bit of a background on that, because I'm still trying to just primarily talk about the slave trade, but this is just so relevant. Um, before. You, uh, you get into the fact that you might look into the Lucy's and the quote unquote missing link might be found in Africa, which wasn't accepted until the very early 20th century, 1900s, right? They were looking everywhere else, everywhere else. They just would not do it. Even though other, uh, scholars would suggest this, they would have none of it. They were like the civilization could not have started or the first human could not have been here. Same way that Michael Flinders Peachy would always just talk about uh, his dynastic theory, you know. Now, they always praise his scholarship. They praise his sequence dating, which is basically just looking at a bunch of pottery and guessing. Sorry. <clears throat> but my point is, they've always been trying to take anything, any achievement out of Africa and out of African people's hands. Okay. So there's a lot of significance there. When we really start delving into African history, which this is a huge con, is the largest continent on the planet. It's the largest inhabitable landmass as well. And I say that to, to, to shoot out any of this Russian stuff. The largest inhabited and inhabitable continent on the planet with the longest standing history 
on the planet. All societies throughout the year have had to come into Africa for something. And it's always been for their knowledge and their wealth. Well, what does the hell does that have to do with the slave trade? The slave trade has always been about wealth. It's always about capital. Anytime that you have to steal and exploit people, it's to gain something that you did not have. So, let's go back into this. So, now when we're going into the slavery in transatlantic. One thing I also like to point out is that, oh yeah, and by the way, uh, Columbus is one of his pilots, one of his main uh, captains that was sailing his ship. Uh, Pedro Nino, that was an African, right? Um, if you read his uh, his diary, he'll tell you how lost they seem to be at sea. And it takes them a while uh, to realize all you got to do is hit the currents. You got about three currents. All of them will lead you to a certain place. Like you don't even really have to sail much. You just have to make it to the current and the current will bring you in. It'll only take you about maybe a week or two depending on your, your vessel and conditions. All right. So that's the first thing about that. One good way to look that up or to study that is to study the rum roots. And when you study the rum roots, you start to understand the nature of the transportation of people. And that's very, very important. Um, because there's, there's a lot of assumption that people were just brought to their designated places, brought and sold to their designated owners. And while there is some truth to that, that, of course, once again, that was much later. Initially, what would happen, because everything was quacking off in Central America first, by nature of the currents, you have to go to like South Mexico, like where, you know, where you can find the old mech heads, the islands like Cuba or uh, right, you know, below where Colombia starts, you know, kind of where Panama, quote unquote, ends. Right. So, you know, that's why. So you would start in what they would call a seasoning camp. Your biggest seasoning camps were in uh, Cuba. But most of them were on the island. So you would be brought there, separated, broken, you know, like broke, busted, you know, whatever, beaten down, whatever you needed to be re-educated um, to serve. The average age, and this is mostly women. And once again, this, and I, I think I told you why they didn't bring many women. So they're, I mean, they didn't bring many of their own women. So naturally, a lot of your slaves would have to be women because you would need to facilitate that next generation somehow. So most of your, uh, the people on the boats was the average between eight to maybe about 24, 25. Okay. So, you know, and I'm pretty sure like more often than not, the, the median or the average was much, much lower. The average is probably more like 15, 16, maybe even 14. Okay. Just, just depending on what kind of sources you're looking at the numbers, but they weren't bringing old people. They were bringing Africa's youth. That's another way that Africa continued to, not be able to get back up on its own feet when you're taking 60 to 100 million Africans. I don't go with that 20 million stuff. And I'll tell you why after the, in a bit. But anytime that you take that many Af like Africans out of a certain place, 60 to 100 million out of that continent can do some damage. And there's speculation that it could be more. That's probably our scholars' most conservative number. Now, many people are going to hop on Google. They're going to see 20 million or 12 million what needs to be understood is that they came about like, cause you have to read the text. There's a, there's a few texts that explain how they come about that number. It's because of the documentation was so, well, they claim it was so rigid. It, they said the number would actually be the rate that, uh, the paperwork were, was suggesting would be just this high number. They're like, there's no way that would be possible. No way. You know, there had to be duplicates. Despite the fact that you had many businesses that were making money to keep track of this sort of thing. Uh, look up the Lloyds of London. Look up the Lloyds of London. You're going to get into your first insurance company for black slaves. If these crackers could put us in a goddamn cute Barbie package and had us sent out, they would have done that. That's how they considered us. Slowly but surely, especially at the advent of the 1600s, we were definitely seen by the rest of the world as material. It, would, it was it, in our slavery it had even gotten to the point where they would pull out our teeth. They would they would use us for body parts, and they still do to this day. But it got to the point that's how much they devalued us. 
where it didn't matter. You would just look at, hmm, hmm, he has some good teeth. Yank him out. A la George Washington. He has four sets of his teeth at, I believe, four different museums in America. You know, they'll tell you, they kind of like to throw that in there. Like, if you go there, they kind of throw it in there. They, you know, they'll tell you that, you know, there's slave teeth, but they'll tell you that it's also some ivory and some elephant. No, you took some slave teeth and you put a 